Coming up in this podcast, Woodside and BHP, Peter Coleman, election funding, workplace health and safety, the arts industry, small business and promoting Perth. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News with Mark Panel and Mark Byer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast and welcome Mark Byer. First up, Mark, the news out of Woodside and BHP is obviously bigger than just the petroleum assets deal, but let's start with that one because it's a monster. Yeah, so Tuesday afternoon, um, look, it was a really quite momentous day. Uh, Woodside and BHP put out a package of news. There were really five big stories in there. Each of them on their own would have rated as front page news. Yep. And we had to try and uh, assess them all. Um, as you say, the big one was that Woodside Petroleum is buying BHP's petroleum business. Yep. And in one fell swoop, this will double the size of Woodside. Um, at the time of the announcement, it was valued at around $20 billion. Um, it'll be something around $40 billion. Yeah, um, give or take a Give or take movements in, and movements in oil prices. Yeah. The deal won't close until the middle of next year. Lots mm. of uh, work to go through, um, but there's certainly an agreement there. Look, how, it, how was that graded by the market generally? Well, the share price of both companies has come off substantially this week. Um, BHP in particular was off about 16%, uh, Woodside off about 11%. It's interesting to sort of disentangle all the variables in there. Yes. Um, I think from a, uh, just the petroleum deal in particular, I mean, look, it, clearly it's, it's Woodside doubling down on fossil fuels and BHP getting, getting out, out of the industry yeah. Yeah. And, and focusing on you know, cleaner sort of minerals and, and so on, which we'll talk a bit about more in a moment. Yeah. Um, for Woodside, look, it's a, it's a more diversified business. You know, their, their core assets have been in Western Australia, the Northwest Shelf. Um, they're picking up some, some old assets in the Bass Strait, um, a lot more in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, you know, this business had been run out of Houston, uh, some in Trinidad and Tobago. So there's a, a range of growth opportunities in there. Um, it also ensures there's more alignment for their Scarborough project. That's a a $16 billion project off the WA coast, their, their next big growth opportunity. Yep. Um, you know, Woodside, like all oil and gas companies, has been coming under a lot of pressure. Uh, but look, they're still firmly of the view that they're part of the solution, not the problem. Yeah, and um, they've also got a hydrogen play going on in the background as well, haven't they? Yeah, oh, look, Woodside's been sort of looking at hydrogen for a number of years yeah. and certainly sees opportunities there um, if they can get customers to commit as well, um, yeah. just a crucial bit. Um, and then looking at the spectrum of it, you know, their, their view is, look, a lot of their customers up in North Asia still use coal. Now, they're saying LNG is a big improvement on that and that the Scarborough project in particular will be one of the cleanest LNG projects in the world. Yeah, yeah. And Mark, um, just one little uh, tidbit in all this, uh, that acquisition, if it all gets approved by shareholders and everything, puts Woodside in as a top 10 oil and gas company in the world, which I think is a fascinating uh, moment. And I know, you know there are people in town who 
are excited about working for a company of that scale. So it puts, puts them on the map. Um, and I was doing a bit of statistics around the deal itself um, and whether this was the biggest deal in Western Australia's history. Um, <clears throat> I don't think it is, and I don't think it's been talked up that way. Um, because if we go back to 2007, when West Farmers bought Coles, in nominal terms, it was a smaller deal because collectively it, was a th it created a $32 billion company at the time. But in real terms, that was about a $44 billion company if you were doing it in today's dollars. So that, that um, acquisition by West Farmers of Coles was a bigger deal um, than the current uh, deal, Woodside buying BHP Petroleum. There you go. Okay, now that's, that's good context. Um, look, going back to your earlier comment though, um, it's, it's a nice thing for Perth mm. to be headquarters for a company of this global significance uh, and a company with a lot of opportunity to yeah. keep on growing yeah, and absolutely. become a lot more than it is already. Yeah, and, and yeah, yeah, home too, yeah, a, the home of some global assets, blah, blah, blah. Um, and also, I think it kicks Woodside back up as the biggest company based here. I'm not sure uh, where they sit against uh, FMG. Or no, no, FMG no, I think, I think both um, West Farmers and Fortescue Metals Group, by market value, would still be sitting above. Yeah, I don't think, because West Farmers demerged from, the demerger of Coles will have brought West Farmers well back. Uh, but I'm not sure of the numbers there now. Did we do a... We'll have to go and do the local market cap on them. We've got three very big companies. Yeah. Headquartered in Perth. Yeah. Across three very different industries. You and, you, and you and I, Mark, just in the time that we've worked for Business News, that, that's three quite significant changes, isn't it? Yes. Because you mentioned, I think, that Woodside came from Melbourne in that time. So that's one arrival. West Farmers... 20 years ago was, you know, big, but Bunnings was really only just kicking off. And FMG did not exist. So it's quite a big change in 20 years. Certainly is. All right. Um, now, obviously, in amongst that news uh, and part of the speculation that was going on in the days before it was all announced was who was going to run this merged new top 10 oil and gas producer. Uh, there was Geraldine Slattery was named as a possibility. She's the head of the uh, BHP assets. Uh, but actually, as turned out, Meg O'Neill, who was acting CEO of Woodside, got the gig. Is that right? That's right. And look, generally, that's the way most people were anticipating it would pan out. Um, and look, I think it's, it's an announcement that's been broadly welcomed across the business community. Yep. Uh, yeah, Meg O'Neill, she's got about 27 years in oil and gas, uh, mostly with ExxonMobil. Um, been in Perth with Woodside for about three years yep. and been acting chief executive since April uh, when Peter Coleman moved on. So she's had an unusual um, audition for the top job. So as well as sort of running the business, mm. um, there's been these negotiations. And just BHP. to remind listeners, I mean, I mean, Peter Coleman was meant to serve out being CEO till the end of this year, or till around about now anyway. And yet he then stepped away earlier 
Um, obviously, because some of this was going on in the background, maybe, we'll, you know, I'm not sure how much we knew at the time, but there was definitely sort of, I guess, the view that if he's the outgoing CEO, in effect, you shouldn't have that person negotiating the next the next point. You should have the potentially the new CEO doing that. Is that a fair synopsis? Yeah, and look, he's talked about both the BHP deal but also uh, the final investment decision on Scarborough. Yes. These are the things that are setting up Woodside for the future. Yeah. And hence Peter Coleman's view is, well, let's get somebody else in there. Yeah. Help make those decisions and then drive the business forward rather than him making those decisions and then walking out the door. Yeah, and someone else inheriting something and blaming, you know, oh, this was a terrible deal or whatever. Yeah, got it, got it. But look, I mean... What a first day in the job. Peg yeah. O'Neill, yeah. she's confirmed as chief executive and announces a multi-billion dollar sort of company transforming deal. Yeah. Not many people get to do that on their first day in the job. No, absolutely not. And uh, uh, I mean, I've only met Meg once or twice in passing. She seems like a very good character. Certainly people I know at Woodside rate her highly and, uh, and think it was a good pick. And I think, you know, there's been discussion around the in the press elsewhere that, you know, her skills in the negotiating, uh, in negotiating this deal kind of sealed it for her as the, you know, yep, she's the one. So good on her. And look, I had a chat to Meg after the announcements. There were two things she kept on hammering about what she wants Woodside to focus on, low cost and low carbon. So while they are planning these big investments in some future projects, they're still hammering the cost-cutting focus. You know, they're trying to take 30% of costs out of their operating businesses. Yep. So that's still a focus. Uh, and then low carbon. You know, they're, they're a fossil fuel company that want to be as, as green as, and clean as they can be. Yep. And look, the other observation too, uh, a really interesting situation that at Woodside, they've got an eight-member executive committee. Half of those people are women. So, you know, Meg said to me, look, she's, she's pleased that she was chosen on her merits, but she's also pleased to work for a company that walks the talk when it comes to inclusion. Mm. Um, and, yeah, Fortescue, we mentioned as well, very strong uh, female representation at the top. Um, so they're, if you like, they're setting a really good example for what big organisations can do. Yep. Excellent. Um, and, look, you know, flipping to the other side of this transaction bhp you know it's a big announcement day for bhp as well um so a the decision to uh, sell its assets um but behind that there's two other things let's talk about one of them doing away with its dual listed structure this is a um, it's a hangover from the days when bhp bought billiton um in fact and just as an aside I was watching a business show on TV last night and uh, the young journalist was still referring to BHP Billiton. Yes. I thought I haven't heard that name for quite a while. (laughs) So as a result of the Billiton, so Billiton was a UK-based company. So you had this weird situation where you had BHP Limited based in with, with shares listed on the ASX and BHP PLC with shares listed in London. Um, But effectively it was one group. Yeah. So they're formalising that now. This has been discussed for a long time. Um, interestingly, out of all the big announcements during the week, the one that people in London were focused on the most 
was the unwinding of this dual company structure. Of course. Uh, It's a bit of a blow to London's prestige as a financial centre that BHP PLC will disappear. It's one of the biggest companies on the FTSE index. It's the Um, biggest mining company in the world. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's a, a confirmation too about Australia as sort of a, a global mining capital. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, I love that there's a particular word that got used quite a bit around this, the contortions that BHP had to go through to get to be able to deliver dividends and, and, and the like to its uh, UK investors via the PLC structure. You know, it, it, it took all this fancy footwork um, and, of course, part of the advantages of an Australian-listed company is things like frank dividends and et cetera, et cetera, which then obviously presumably didn't work in that structure. Uh, and as a result, it traded as a dis- at a discount there, which you know I don't think is great for any company to have this sort of arbitrage trading between two different um, parts of its own entity or two entities representing the one part, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, but look, you know, it's uh, I, I do look back at that BHP Billiton transaction 20 years ago or so. I can't remember about then. What's left from the Billiton side? Well, this was one of the points that Mike Henry at BHP was making, that of the group's total assets, only 5% sit in the in the PLC company sort of yeah. entity. Um, that you know, the, the world has changed an awful lot since then. Yeah, so they, they demerged part of the assets as South 32, um, which is significant, but that represented a lot of the Billiton assets, didn't it? Well, that originally came from the old Western Mining Corporation. Oh, and a bit of that well. as well, right, yeah. yeah. So yeah. a bit of a mixture there. Mm. But it's kind of, it's just, I look back at that transaction and wonder whether that was, you know... Anyway, just, you know, it's one way of looking back, isn't it? Uh, look, you're not the first person to have questioned that, um, and I've seen other people over the years who've said that Billiton shareholders did very well out of that deal, if you look at the the value of those assets subsequent. Yeah. Anyway, um, now the other uh, element of all this is the focus of BHP by selling the asset, the oil assets, which take a lot of capital to to maintain and and deliver on, uh, has allowed them to shift focus. So let's talk about what they're investing in now, because that's quite interesting from a minerals perspective. They love to use this term future-facing minerals. Um, so things like copper, things like nickel, and of course their biggest business is iron ore up in the Pilbara. Uh, and the next one they're adding to that is potash, um, you know, a, a key uh, sort of ingredient into fertiliser. So there's a project in Canada, the Janssen Project, They've committed to invest about five and a half billion US dollars in that one. Mm-hmm. They've been looking at this, you know, for a number of years. Uh, in fact, Tim Treadgold, in our latest edition, had a very good bit of analysis around this. Um, it's an example of when the big guys get into a commodity market, mm. it then becomes a lot more challenging for all the small players yeah, right. looking to get into it. And there's five or six ASX listed companies in WA who are all working on their own potash projects. Yeah, right. And now they're going to have the big gorilla in the market yeah. competing with them. Because that changes their whole supply and demand dynamic, doesn't it? It smooths the curve. The big guy can control the market to a degree. 
and also takes big off-take agreements with large customers, which then takes them out of the market as well. I presume that's the kind of stuff we're talking about, are we? Yeah, yeah. And look, so BHP big investing big in potash. Um, they've also they've already been investing in nickel. You know, nickel West in WA has been expanding, and they've got a takeover bid for a nickel play in Canada. Um, copper is an area where they see growth potential. And all of this is really about trying to set up the business for what will be an inevitable uh, tapering off in the iron ore business. Yeah. Because, of course, the other news on Tuesday uh, was the annual profit from BHP. And you know, the driver there, as it's been for some time, was iron ore. 80% of profit comes from the Pilbara iron ore assets. Like that. Yes. Uh, now, iron ore prices have come off, come off very substantially over the last month or so. Yeah. Um, still at, you know, if you take a long view, still at very comfortable levels. Yeah. Um, just they've come off the peak. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and I think all the iron ore miners see the long-term trend that the price will come off, um, their margins will get squeezed, and they'll be looking for new growth opportunities. Yeah. And, and BHP has mapped out pretty clearly where they see that. Fascinating. All right. Well, that's enough about that. Although there's still a little connection here as we segue beautifully into another thing. Former Woodside CEO Peter Coleman, who we just mentioned, has emerged as chair of Infinite Blue Energy. Infinite Blue Energy, Perth-based company, uh, set up by and led by Stephen Gold. Um, Stephen has worked in the, the um, sort of oil and gas services industry for many years. Uh, and he's seen this opportunity in hydrogen. Uh, just remind the readers, uh, mm. Matt McKenzie had a big feature in our last edition talking about some of the challenges around hydrogen. Um, and in fact, I went to a dinner with the Energy Club during the week and I was headlined um, Hydrogen Hype or Hope. Um, now, Infinite Blue Energy is one of the companies that's convinced that there's a lot more than hype there. Yeah. Uh, they've got the Aerosmith project up in the Perth Basin. Uh, they've been they're considerably advanced in that. They see a niche opportunity for supplying hydrogen as a fuel source for the road trains that uh, trundle up the highways mm -hmm. and also for remote communities. Um, and then yeah, beyond that, they're potentially much bigger. Yeah, right. Um, so you use that as your capacity builder. Yeah. The reason to produce the stuff and create um, ways of getting it to the market. Yeah, I got it. And look, and it's been a big endorsement for the company mm. that Peter Coleman was prepared to sign up as their chairman. Yeah. Um, so it was, what, three months ago that Peter retired from Woodside. Um, he's only had one other appointment since then. He's joined the board of Schlumberger. You know, they're a big global um, services company in oil and gas. Yeah. Um, and then joining up with a local effect, well, it's a startup business, um, small, but really exciting opportunity. Hey, here's a, I, I can't give you the stats on this, but I remember having a good chat about the hydrogen play in trucks and logistics and um, the discussion around if you were having an electric truck that could drive up to the Pilbara, you'd need a battery that would take up about one of the trailers, right? Whereas if you're using hydrogen, You've just got a big tank that might represent, you know, about a quarter or a third of of a trailer size sitting on the back of the truck. So it's it's a huge difference and a game changer there because you can have a hydrogen tank that takes you the whole way, of course. Yeah. Whereas with passenger vehicles, 
you know, the battery is still seen as the um, has a big advantage. Yeah, for urban usage like you and I, and not you know, and, and even to zip down to down south and recharge overnight and come back, it's all possible. Yeah, absolutely. But you might not want to be operating out in the field. Uh, you know, remote again, remote stuff, very different. Now let's uh, change things very much and talk about uh, WA political party funding. Jordan Murray has looked at this. Look, there's a this is a really fascinating bit of research that he's done. Um, he's got a list that I'm looking at right now of the top 50 donors to political parties in Western Australia. Now, one of the reasons Jordan has dived into this is that getting this kind of information is not easy. Yeah. Um, it's, it's always been very opaque and it's always very delayed. Yeah. Um, and, and there's no good reason for that. Um, plus there's also the whole debate around you know, property developers, for instance. You know, in New South Wales and Queensland, property yeah. developers are not allowed to donate to political parties. Um, yeah. And then there's foreign influence. Foreign influence as well. Um, now, one of the challenges is that top of the list, the biggest donator to um, the Liberal Party is the, quote, Liberal Party of Australia, unquote. Yeah. So it all gets sort of channeled through um, entities where you don't really know where the money's coming from. Uh, you've got the 500 Club, you've got the Labor Business Roundtable, yeah. um, all these sorts of organisations, plus taxpayers, of course, mm. are um, very substantial contributors to the political parties. Yeah. The more votes you get, the more money you get from the taxpayer. Of course. Um, but there's also, um, you know, so for, of course, all the big unions, the Shop Assistance Union, United Workers, Transport Workers, Manufacturing Workers, they're some of the big donors to the Labor Party. Um, on the other side, quite a few corporates that donate across the board. Uh, one of the largest is Crown. Um, they donated about $440,000 over the past few years to both sides of politics. Yep. Um, a few other names just for good measure. Uh, Chris Ellison's company, Mineral Resources, is one of the biggest donors. Um, Perth Airport, Jandicott Airport, both of course privatised entities. Uh, Northern Star Resources, Perdiman. So quite a collection there. Um, but also quite a few names that have chosen to donate just to the Liberal Party. Um, Charlie Bass. Um, Quite well known around town. Yeah. Made his money out of iron ore, investing a lot in technology these days. Um, uh, Gordon Martin's company, Coogee, uh, Schaefer Corporation, uh, Willie Packer. So look, it's, um, there's, a, there's a really comprehensive database there and a really good analysis about that whole issue. Mm. Um, and, I've, I've, you know, we talk about transparency a lot in this podcast, whether it's in a political context or a corporate context. Transparency deals with a lot of issues. If you're just up front with people and say, look, where's the money coming from? And tell us in a timely manner. Yeah. And this is what we do not have when it comes to political donations. Yeah, I know, it's not great. Not, you know, over the years I've definitely dug around in that, you know, electoral commission database and it's it's not the easiest, you know, simplest database to use. Um, and you're right, then you've got different structures around you know different groups that raise money and then give to parties um not ideal get that um and there's another debate there mark as well around the purpose of political party funding 
um, you know, some people just see are cynical about it and say, you know, that it's it's people just trying to get advantage and favour. But there are people who genuinely believe that, you know, that like especially ones that fund both sides of politics that you know. Politicians need the money to go out there and get their message across, and then the voters decide on that message. Um, and I would say that some of those donors to the Liberal Party now would be thinking, would be coming in going, we haven't got democracy at its best here right now when you've got one, you know, one of the major parties that's actually only got two seats. You know, that, that would seem like the politics has got skewed to one side too far. Now, none of us expect that to last over time, but... You know, po political parties, why the taxpayer funds that to a degree is to give those who've got the votes something to work with. And if they haven't got the votes uh, because of, you know, things like a pandemic or whatever, that I can see that people feel strongly about that. So, I mean, I know people get very cynical about it, but I do think there are some, some good reasons why it exists. Uh, we just need to keep it, as you say, transparent and not opaque. Um, now, uh, Mark, you've looked at workplace health and safety, um, a big area, lots of change. What, what, have you, what are the trends there? Well, the, the main driver for doing this is the increasing focus on this area. You know, it's um, something that you know, all organisations, all employers have acknowledged as important, but it's becoming more so, and it's becoming a, a wider issue so I think, you know, traditionally we thought about workplace safety in terms of making sure people didn't fall down the stairs or something heavy yeah. didn't fall on their head. Um, then it widened out to things like industrial diseases, um, and, and that's still still something to be uh, conscious of. Um, but then it's much more into mental health, and now in particular the whole focus on sexual harassment. So that has fed through to, we've had the, the Respect at Work report that yeah. came out a year and a half ago. Um, all the political debate out of Canberra, uh, you know, driven by the example of Brittany Higgins. We've seen a, um, a, a new bill put forward by the federal government, uh, which involves some quite significant shifts um, in the way this is dealt with. Yeah. In addition, we've got new legislation in Western Australia, the Work Health and Safety Act, um, which, among other things, involves a very substantial increase in penalties uh, for people that breach the legislation, yep. but also a, a very substantial widening of powers for people, uh, for government regulators and their capacity to go into workplaces. So the whole focus here is about company officers, so whether it's chief executives or directors, having to be a lot more forward-looking and proactive in this space. Yeah. Um, ensuring that there's a, a governance framework there, that there's appropriate reporting and so on. And some from some of the advisors I've been talking to, they found the fact that sexual harassment, for instance, is now accepted as a workplace health and safety issue, actually sort of shifts the way in which people see it and the way in which they can manage it. Mm. Uh, and then later on top of all that, we've got this, the ongoing concerns about COVID and the debate around whether or not an employer can mandate COVID vaccination. Now, Qantas came out during the week and said that they were going to require all of their staff to be vaccinated. Mm. Um, they're only about, you know, C, um, 
SPC was the first off cab off the rank. A lot of employers are really struggling with this one. Yep. Um, they want all their staff to be vaccinated, but you know, it's a big step to mandate something like that. So there's a, a lot of issues in this space. And what what's the risk there from a company perspective? Is it that they mandate it and they're then alienating this 15 or 20% of people who you know fundamentally against it for whatever reason? Or is it that they don't want it, they're, they're scared of the one in a million chance that someone will have a real bad side effect and therefore they'll be liable for that? I think it comes both ways. Um, and so the test they have to look at is, is it legal and is it reasonable? Sure. And that then gets about to, you know, what's the circumstance? You know, is there community transmission around their workplace? Um, how much interaction is there between their staff yeah. and customers and so on? So on all those sorts of criteria, you know, it's pretty easy for someone like Qantas yeah. to come out and say it. And they've done this quite smartly. They went out and did a staff survey. Um, they found that most of their staff are already vaccinated. Yeah, I think it's 75% and, already. And the vast majority are comfortable with it. Yeah. And they said, look, there's going to be a small group there that either can't or don't want to be vaccinated. And they said their future does not lie in aviation. And that seems an entirely reasonable conclusion to come yeah, to. Yeah, well, it's and look, at some point, you know, I, I realise there were always that 3 or 5% of the anti-vaxxer community out there and, you know, you can't, you can live with that, I suppose. But this sort of nouveau version where people are getting, you know, angsty about, well, they just said one in a million risk when really there's a one in a million risk and in, in, in much higher risk in so many other day-to-day things that people don't think about. I kind of think, yeah, this this injects some realism in it. So I hope it, I hope people go strong. Mark, just um, also thinking aloud, you know, about your talking about the change in the workplace, how something like for us a media company. I mean, I think back 15, 20 years ago, and I know we talked about it. You know, the biggest OCH health and safety risk was a paper cut, and I know that we also debated. You know, we had young journalists might go out on the road and go and meet someone one-on-one somewhere, you know, like how did we make sure that that, you know, person was safe, even though we're really only doing business, you know, they're not exactly crime investigators or anything, but it was, it came up a little bit, whereas now you fast forward to 2021 and, you know, I think it's much more of the conversation in the workplace, even a workplace like ours, around all those other issues you talked about. And that whole widening of the definition yeah. So the preponderance of, well, yeah, crude and offensive jokes, yeah. you know, constitute sexual harassment. Yeah. And according to all the surveys, is offensive both to many women and men. Yeah. So it's, it's a very broad issue. And I think every employer needs to rethink about that. Mm. Something that they personally might be comfortable with isn't necessarily acceptable or comfortable for their staff. Yeah. No Pirelli calendars in our new kitchen here, mate. <laughs> I joke. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> right, now, um, Mark, uh, among our special reports out in the mag next week is a look at the arts sector. Uh, Maddie Stevens has dug deep into the arts community in Western Australia. Uh, we've got a, a great database of all arts companies in WA, uh, one of many in our data and insights uh, section on the website. You've got all the figures there from all the big arts organisations. At a headline level, one of the surprising things that Maddie found was that there was actually quite a modest 
just a small dip in revenue right. for the big arts companies despite um, last financial year, yeah. despite COVID and shutdowns and so on. Um, but it's just like any sort of uh, financial statements, you've got to dig a bit deeper. Um, some of the arts companies actually made very big profits last year, mm-hmm. but it came from revaluation of the Fortescue Metals Group shares uh-huh. that they hold. Yeah, right. Uh, which were donated you know, many years ago yep. by Andrew Forrest. Um, that's flowed through. Also, quite significant um, uh, government payments, uh, JobKeeper payments uh, to some of the big arts organisations. At an operational level, though, generally they experienced a fall off in revenue, mm. as you would anticipate. And then looking behind the numbers, you know, they all struggled with the challenges of running an arts organisation that puts on events yep. um, at a time of COVID. Um, I know there was you know, there were restrictions, then there were crowd limits, then the number of people they could get in changed, and it changed again. Yeah. And they're still facing that. And it's also from the consumer side, Mark. I mean, you know, who wants to buy... I've done this recently. We bought tickets to you know, a a concert and it got canned and postponed till December and, you know, that date in December doesn't suit us. Are we really get you know, like it really puts you off buying tickets when you're going to get that kind of nonsense. And I mean that in the nicest way, but, you know, that kind of stuff happening, you know, oh, well, I'll leave it till later. I won't book in, you know, I won't, I certainly won't travel to go and do something, you know, so it does, it does change it from the customer side of things, big time. Sounds like you've got a lower tolerance, but um, we've been getting out and enjoying a few shows, but I agree, it, it, it is more difficult. And I probably moment. do less of it, and it was one of those ones that was quite a spontaneous thing, and of course, you know, we're a group of us all looking forward to some event, but it was more the fact that the, the postponed date was one that didn't suit any of us that were doing it. It was literally the week before Christmas, and, you know, most of us had other things going on on that weekend, which is a real shame. Um... Now, Mark, also briefly, we looked at small business. What can you say about that? Yeah, Matt McKenzie's done a nice little wrap-up there on the state of small business. Some interesting stats he's dug up. number of new business registrations in Western Australia is actually uh, at a very high level, yeah. uh, which is sort of counterintuitive, um, and also a substantial fall in number of insolvencies. Um, and I, I think, you know, as we've discussed, you've really got to sort of break the economy down into different sectors. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of businesses in WA doing really well at the moment, um, and then certain sectors are really struggling. Yeah. Uh, but Matt sort of delved into that, so a nice little wrap-up from him. Yeah, and just a brief comment on that. I, I, you know, I know you say it's counterintuitive, but my reading of things last year, a lot of people took the moment of COVID to go, oh, this is it. I'm going to bite the bullet and get on with it and start my own business, you know. And, and I don't even think half of them were made redundant or lost their jobs. I think they're anticipating that could happen, but I think they found themselves... I just think COVID created that moment. And when we saw actually that things weren't going to be that bad in WA, I think that gave people even more security about, well, if I leave my job now and go and do this thing, this, is, this might be my one chance. It's just funny how things happen like that. Um, and on the, the case of... Businesses falling over. I think a lot of JobKeeper kept a lot of businesses alive. Um, I think a lot of insolvency people expected that by March, in just gone, there would be a large level of collapse in WA. 
but the economy has come through and and those businesses that were just surviving on JobKeeper are now busy again. So JobKeeper particularly worked, I think, and the other stimulus stuff, in some cases, it overworked. Um, now, Mark, lastly, out next week in the mag is our latest Promoting Perth, part of the special series we're looking at national and global operators based here. Uh, yeah, this is the, the monthly lift out we're doing um, in partnership with Committee for Perth. And the one we focused on this month is around uh, organisations in Perth, that, or organisations headquartered in Perth that are looking beyond. Uh, there are a couple of elements to this one. I was actually looking back at the mining sector. Now, Melbourne always used to be the, the, the mining capital. You know, if you go back to the 90s, mm. uh, BHP, CRA, Western Mining, um, Woodside, um, Alcoa of Australia, you know, they were all headquartered in Melbourne. Yep. Uh, but that's really shifted. Um, you know, BHP's still there. Um, CRA's now sort of morphed into Rio Tinto. Uh, Western Mining got taken over. But a lot of their assets now sit in South 32, which is headquartered here. Yep. Uh, Woodside and our core of Australia both shifted their headquarters to Perth. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's been a really significant shift there. Um, the other there's one, some regional headquarters too, like Chevron regionally is based here, correct? You're right. Yes, yeah, so there's more to it than that. But yep. yeah. So that's an encouraging trend for Perth. Yeah. Uh, and then I think even within that, you know, companies like BHP and Rio, there's been this ongoing discussion about shifting their head office to Perth. I don't think it's going to happen. Mm. Uh, they've certainly discouraged it. But they've got a lot of people here and a lot of decision makers here. Yes. Um, and then the other part of it is outside of mining. There actually aren't all that many Perth born and bred companies that have become players at a national or global level. Yeah. But we've looked at a few of the ones that have done that. Now, West Farmers is the classic example, you know, a Perth headquartered conglomerate with big operations nationally and international. Yep. Navitas is another one, Rod Jones Company in education services. Um, Australian Finance Group, they're a big national player in mortgage broking, still run from West Perth. Um, and there's a few others that we talk about there. So a nice little analysis about you know, the reshaping of the Perth business scene. Great. Look forward to reading that. Thanks, Mark. Fortescue Metals Group Chief Executive Elizabeth Gaines will be joining us for our next Success and Leadership Breakfast on Tuesday, August 31. FMG is front and centre of the future energy debate, so come down and hear about this major WA business and its plans. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Bayer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.